It's Thursday, July 10th. Welcome to Market Foolery. I'm Chris Hill. Joining me in the studio today for Motley Fool Fund, Tim Hansen. Thanks for being here. Hey. Um, holy cow, did earnings season start with a bang. And not the good kind of bang. No, no, not the good kind of bang. <laughs> so, we'll, we'll get to housing in a moment. Uh, we had the Motley Fool Fund shareholder meeting yesterday. I want to talk about that. But let's start across the sea, because European markets which we rarely discuss, were falling across the board today due to concerns about Portugal's largest publicly traded bank, Banco Espirito Santo. Uh, Shares were suspended. Trading was suspended today because apparently the parent company of the bank missed some payments on some of its debt, and shares were down about 14%. We were talking earlier today. Your reaction was, why is anyone surprised by this? You know, European banks were hardy outperformers in 2013 and through the first half of 2014. And, you know, we, I, I look at a lot of banks, I look at a lot of things in Europe. So, I, I mean, I was tasked with going through all the European banks and seeing if we could find something that looked interesting. And frankly, nothing looked interesting. I, it, was, it was bizarre to me that the market was treating these entities as though the problems were all solved because. You know, one, it, it didn't seem like any of them really had their hands around their non-performing loan formation rates. Like loans were going bad on them, as they should in places where even though unemployment has ticked down, Spain still twenty five percent non-performing loan formation rate, which is the, the you know the rate at which loans are going bad on you, and you have to recognize them. Um, I think they were being very aggressive about not recognizing things that might go bad. And especially when you just, I mean, unemployment in Spain is still 25%. Portugal is 14, 15%. Greece, 26%. Italy, 10%, 12%. France, 10%. I mean, those are big numbers. Those are high numbers. And they're still loaning out money. And, they're, and they were growing their loan books like the economy was, was kicking into gear based on some European stimulus package. And I just didn't see it. I mean, of all the banks I looked at, I found maybe one that looked interesting in Italy. And, and the rest were all way too convoluted and complicated. And this Portuguese bank is super convoluted and complicated because in order to, fu- it basically it got, it got financing that it needed to fund its balance sheet from its own entity. Um, so the parent company was getting funding from the bank's investment arm and then funneling that funding back into the bank to make the balance sheet look better than it actually did on the, on the, you know, on the funding side. And, and whenever you see big related party transactions happening like that, I mean, they're not, arm's length. There's no way the terms that they were getting were representative of what they might get on the open market. And this is an accommodative market from an interest rate perspective. And if they felt like they had to do everything on a on a related party basis instead of going to the open market, I mean, that should give you some idea that there are significant problems there that they don't want to share with the outside world. Apparently, there are accounting irregularities as well. Once you miss, you know, if you're missing debt payments, that means you're not like you're not you don't have cash. We all remember from 2008, 2009, what's, what's the worst thing for a bank not to have? Right. <laughs> because all of a sudden, if you're a depositor at that bank, and they do have about $60 billion in deposits, if they're missing debt payments, how good do you feel about them holding on to your deposits? Is your, is your account liquid? So if they show up and start taking money out, now you've got to run, you've got a huge problem, and, and all of a sudden the capital at the bank just disappears and you've got a collapse on your hands. So, you know, th- this doesn't look good. But people, you know, for and I think this theme will tie over into earnings season. I mean, the economies around the world are improving, but they're improving very slowly. But the stock market is up, you know, was up 25 some odd percent last year. It's up another healthy amount already in the first half of this year. 
it has outpaced the economic fundamentals in most places. And, and you know, when those fundamentals rear their ugly heads, as they are in Portugal right now, and are they, you know, in the, in the housing sector and in the retail sector, you know, the market's got to correct. Is this an overreaction in some ways? Because the Portugal is not a huge country. I get that this is the largest bank there, and it's the second largest lender. But the stat I saw today was that Portugal's GDP is roughly half of the state of North Carolina. Yeah, I mean, I mean, the stock being down seventeen, twenty percent, whatever it was that that's probably an appropriate reaction because you know the first people to get wiped out when a bank needs capital are going to be the equity right. shareholders. But the across the global the, reaction, the European markets across the board. I mean, to be down one to two two percent, were they down two percent today? I mean, that's not a that's not a big number, right? But it's just a recognition that you know things aren't as healthy as 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 maybe we thought. Um, and like I said, I think you know I was in I was in Germany not long ago looking at stuff. And just everything was expensive. I mean, you just look at stocks. You're like, oh, that's a good company. Wow. What are they? <laughs> Man, that's a crazy value. Well, that's a good. Ooh, no, no, pass on that. So, I mean, there. You know, I'm I'm actually going back to Europe in a few weeks for work, and I have lots of meetings set up with companies that I think look are good companies, but you know, none of them are 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 you know look like clear buying opportunities due due to valuation. I mean, they were you know 14 months ago. I wish I'd been paying closer attention, but. Yeah, Europe is still. I mean, it's not. It's not quite as as. Um, it's not kicking back into gear quite as as well as people thought. Are you meeting with any banks when you go over there? Or yeah, there's a bank in Italy um, that I'm going to see. A bank in Germany that looks that looks. It's kind of a niche niche bank, uh, but you know the, the interesting thing about Europe versus the United States from a banking side is that almost every bank in Europe would be systemic. There are they are they are a lar- All the banks there are large. Um, there is really no such thing in Europe as a community bank like we have here in the United States where we have thousands of banks. And you can go, you could bank at Bank of America here in Northern Virginia, you could bank at Wells Fargo, or you could bank at Carter Bank or Access National or Burke and Herbert. You know, I mean, it, w- the banks in America run through, you know, different numbers of assets, different asset sizes. And that diversification, while one side of the argument says that's inefficient, that diversification is, is nice from a from you know a stability perspective in, in Europe where every bank is systemic. You know, I'm sure that some of the funding at the bank in Portugal does come from other European banks, and that's where you start to see that's where you'd see knock-on effects. Because once you have to start writing down your capital base, all of a sudden you, your ratios get out of whack. You have to raise capital, and that's problematic. Let's bring it back to American Shores Lumber Liquidators. Reports earnings on July 30th, and shares are down more than 20% so far this morning because they came out and cut their earnings outlook, not just for Q2, but for the full fiscal year. And it is just a sea of red out there. And what surprises me is not so much that lumber liquidators is down to the degree it is, but that the ripple effect is hitting Tile Shop Holdings, which was down about 9 or 10% last time I checked. Even Home Depot and Lowe's, which are exponentially bigger home improvement companies than lumber liquidators, they're down one5 2%. Well, you know, the issue here, you know, there was bad weather in January and February, and so a lot of companies in this sector reported kind of weak Q1 results. And But they said, you know, it was weather. And, and you know, housing starts were down, but it was all weather, and we saw the cadence of our business activity pick up in March. And the permit data and everything suggested that that story was was true. And through April and even into May, these companies were still saying, you know, we, we like we like how we're positioned heading into the summer. 
And I think most people in the stock market bought that story. Um, you know, the, the census just last week, I think, released the um, May permit numbers, and they were down almost 3% year over year. And then Lumber Liquidators comes out today and says June for them was worse than May. Or, you know, April was worse than March. May was worse than April. June was worse than May. And we're cutting our guidance for the year because even though we think that there's a housing recovery that's happening over the next few years, it's it's not materializing as quickly as we thought. And there you go. I mean, that's that, that macro observation is what's going to hit everybody in the sector because every one of those stocks people had, I think, baked in accelerating growth in housing starts and more remodel activity as people bought and sold homes. And for whatever reason, that activity is slowing down during two months where we had good weather. So that's problematic for, for that for that for that industry. Do you think part of what's happening and this is kind and lumber liquidators is exp- it was like 18 times EBITDA. I mean it sells hardwood flooring. Yeah, I know they can grow their retail store base, but right. At the end of the day, right? It's it's still a they sell floors. It's not it's not an internet business with infinite operating leverage. Right. <laughs> right. If lumber liquidators comes out and takes a page out of the GoPro playbook and yeah. says, "Well, this is what we do now, but we're actually going to be a media company in 2 years." That would be surprising. Uh, when you, this is a little bit of an unfair crystal ball type question, but w- when you look at what's happening with tile shop holdings, again, da- early in the morning it was it was down about 16%, now it's down 9 or 10%. Do you think p- part of it is not just what is happening with lumber liquidators, but maybe even a little bit of a ripple effect of what we saw with the container store. I mean, tile shop and container store, those are ostensibly two businesses that are appealing somewhat to the higher-end consumer, and they are both broadly in the home improvement space. What's the question? I, do, 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 do you think do you think that's part of it as well? Do you think there are do you think there are maybe institutional investors who are looking at what happened with the Container Store and their earnings? Oh results, yeah, you can certainly and start. then saying you know what, Container Store plus lumber liquidators equals bad for tile shop. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You can definitely start to make a mosaic. You know, when you start getting data points, you get the you know you get the permit data. Then lumber liquidators says things things suck and. Container shop, container store said things aren't as good as we thought, um, and it, and it's not just the weather. I think Kip Tyndall said we're in a retail funk. Retail funk, which uh, should be a fun name for a band. I was just gonna say, <laughs> if there is not a fake <laughs> band Twitter account created soon, retail at, funk at retail funk. Don't confuse it with wholesale funk. Right. Um, you know, yeah, you can absolutely say, you know what, these guys got burned. These guys got burned by the same, and uh, you know, now I've got. Put two and two together. Yeah, it's probably likely that Tile Shop has not had that good a has not had that good a month either because if people aren't putting in hardware flooring, so they probably didn't even get along to the, the point where they have to tile their backsplash. Um, so we'll see. You know, Tile Shop is another expensive. You know, ex- you know. And, and what's funny is you know, h- home building and remodel. It's cyclical. It's a cyclical business, and you know, Tile Shop has only been public very. Recently, I mean, they haven't even gone through a cycle, so you don't even know what that business looks like in a in a down cycle in a lot of ways, or how they will react to being public in a down cycle. And so, you know, paying what people were paying for those shares, you know, that that seems like a, a reach to me. Um, and that company also had corporate governance concerns, but just on a macro basis, absolutely, you can you can I think you can take data points and extrapolate and say, you know what, if people aren't spending on their homes. There's probably not there's probably not a bright spot sticking out that you know you know what everything's bad except Cuisinart. Bam, 
you know, Cleveland Arts are selling like, you know, whatever it is, those outliers are rare. And I think the story that the narrative that's being put together now is that um, spending on homes has it's not falling, but it has it has stalled out over what last year was looking like a pretty nice recovery. And apparently spending on sandwiches has stalled out because shares of pot bellies. Down twenty three percent because they cut their. Have they had a good quarter since they went public? Ah, uh, you know it's all. <laughs> that's another. You know that's one of those where, and this is why we've talked about this before, that you should always be skeptical of newly public companies because you you don't see how they how they, you know how they will behave as a public company reporting results on a quarterly basis. But the other thing is. You know, you know when you're going public, right? You know, you probably know years ahead of time when you're going to go public, and you can dress up your company to look really good, and then you know, you you, you maximize your offering price, and then the, then the wheels fall off. Um, you know, Potbelly. I think the question with them, as soon as they went public, was they had these store expansion plans. They didn't have the money to do it. I mean, how are they going to grow their store? They right. didn't have the capital. So, uh, you know. It, that that one never made sense, and plus, it's such a you know competitive space. For every Chipotle, right? You've got you know fifteen to twenty has beens or, or never will be. So it's tough. I, I just, Food is tough. Food's you, a tough business. You just reminded me when you said, "Have they had a good quarter?" I was thinking, "Have they had a good day since day one?" <laughs> and it, 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 because their IPO was staggering. I mean, it shot up. Uh, but it just reminded me of this this story. You remember Ross Perot ran for president back in sure. 1992. The great sucking sound. The great sucking sound. There was there was a, so there was a point in his sort of grassroots campaign where he decided, okay, I need to bring in some Admiral pol- Stockdale. S- s- uh, not Admiral <laughs> Stockdale. I need to bring in some some professional political operatives. I need to bring in some pros, and so th- so he brings them in, and they start to manage it like it's a, a legitimate presidential campaign. And Ross Perot doesn't like that because he's no longer having fun. Yeah. And he says to one of them, he says, this, this isn't fun. This isn't fun for me anymore. And the guy just looks at him and says, running for president isn't fun. If you're president, there are two days that are fun. The day you're inaugurated and the day you dedicate your library. And that's it. <laughs> that's the, those are the only fun days to be president. Um, before we wrap up, as I mentioned Yesterday was the Motley Fool Fund's shareholder meeting. Had an event here at Fool HQ. Uh, had the chance to meet a, a bunch of people who, who listen to Market Fuller. So it was it was great. Uh, to, yeah, that was to, a lot of well attended. Thank you. Very well attended. Coming. So thanks everyone who came. Um, I, I'm curious if there was anything that that stood out to you. The, there was the Q and A session that we had. You had the chance to interview uh, the former, the longtime and recently former CEO of Drew Industries, which I I thought was just. What a nice guy. Sharp guy, too. Very yeah. sharp guy. Um, and I said to someone, uh, I might have said this to you afterwards, it, remi- it reminded me, it was, it was yet another moment about halfway through your interview with him where I thought, oh, here's a founder-led company with a really smart, savvy CEO, a company that I've heard about in the Motley Fool universe of stocks for years, and at no point did I ever buy shares. You know, I thought, you know, Fred, Fred Zinn was Moronically, yeah. moronically, I never bought shares. Fred Zinn was CFO and CEO of Drew from, I think he said, 78 or 1980 until 2013, just, just last year. Yeah. And during that time, I think Drew, Drew's share price went from, you know, a dollar or two dollars a share to 50. It's unbelievable valuation. You go, that doesn't happen all the time in the public markets. But you say, you know, how'd you do it? And it's not. You know, no discredit to Fred, but it's not rocket science. It's like you know, yeah, we, you know, we, 
did some did some small acquisitions to help us grow, build out our market share. You know, we always paid attention to cash flow. You know, we never bet bet the company's balance sheet. You know, we always probably could have paid out more dividends than we did, but we always felt like we were in a cyclical space and wanted to make sure we had cash to to give us a a cushion in the downtimes. And I mean, in in a world now where companies are making up metrics and measuring things and doing all sorts of exotic financing, you know, building a, a, a sustainable company that rewards shareholders for 30, 40 years, when you talk to people that have done it, you know, sometimes it doesn't seem that hard. I think that's an interesting lesson. And for people unfamiliar with Drew Industries, what's the thirty-second? Uh, they just make part. They make parts for RVs and, and manufactured homes, and so they all the parts that other people don't really want to bother with. So like the awning and the doorknobs and stuff like that. And so they're out headquartered now in Elkhart, Indiana, which I guess is the RV cradle of the United States. And you don't hear about them. You won't hear about them on CNBC. You know, Fred's in. Probably isn't isn't getting calls from CNBC to come in and, and host Squawk Box, but right. <laughs> but that, you know, and that's the point. That's the point. You know, we pay attention to one percent, two percent of the public companies out there, and you know, there are things today like Valiant Pharmaceuticals, which are engaging in very complicated transactions and whatnot to 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 build shareholder value. But at the end of the day, you, you can find great small medium-sized American businesses who are doing things simply and taking care of their stakeholders and you know what that I think those are the people you want to be aligned with over the very long term because you know keep it simple blocking and tackling I guess is the is the overused analogy but that that's that's what it comes down to and I you know I thought that was I thought you know it, it, this is what's as an analyst it's funny we are set up I think at the Motley Fool and particularly at Motley Fool funds that my favorite meeting is when I call up a company, a smaller company, and I say, you know, I'd like to come meet with you. And, you know, and they, they say, why? Nobody's ever done that. And when I hear no one's ever done that, I mean, that's, that, that's me, I think, doing my job, right? And I, I, I love to meet obscure people or obscure companies, things that other people aren't looking at. And yet you talk to people very high profile, particularly on the sell side, and the way they think they're doing their job is by scoring that interview with Mark Zuckerberg or scoring that interview with Tim Cook. And because, you know, I have to, I must be someone important to have been able to get an interview with that guy. I got in, yeah, I got in the door. Or girl. And, um, but incrementally, you're what, the 200th person to go in and look at Apple or Facebook? I mean, there's so many eyes watching it. I mean, you're not finding anything secret. Whereas when you call up, you know, a small bank or a little manufacturer and you say, I'd like to come visit, you know, wow, we've, Never done that before. I mean, that that that's gold as an investor because you're 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 uncovering new new ground. You just touched on something. Uh, um, I was talking with a friend of mine recently who is he's a financial advisor. He's a very good one. He does right by his clients. Um, but we were we were talking about um, different stocks, and I mentioned one in particular, and he said, "I said, do, do any of your clients own that stock?" He said, "No, I don't think so because we don't cover it." And what we got into was just sort of the system, and and we've talked about this before. That that a lot of times, you can work with a great financial advisor, but just be aware that they are operating operating in a system that I'm not going to say is that to screw you, but in some ways is not necessarily working to your advantage. So he was talking about, look, I'm going to recommend stocks that are within the universe of stocks that my firm is covering because. That's going to enable me, among other things, to cover myself. Mm-hmm. And so, just know that if we're talking about uh, 
a company like Drew Industries, it's not on the radar of a lot of big firms. And that if you if you're working with a financial advisor out there and you go to him or her with a stock idea that you've heard about or that you've read about, just be aware that the, you know that that may be one of the first questions you want to ask them is like, hey, do you do you cover this stock? And if they say no, just know that it's not necessarily in their interest to give you the green light to want to go out and buy that. No, I mean they may not even have an. Most likely, they don't even bother having an opinion. You right. know, and that's why, and that's where you can find inefficiencies from time to time. You know, as Bill Mann, who's who's my boss, says, you know, we we believe that the efficient market theory is largely mostly correct, but there is a big difference between being mostly correct and a hundred percent correct. And you know, it's in those little pockets, that one percent, two percent of the time, and 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 that's why it's it's fun hunting around. At things that that other people aren't looking at, and why, if you know, if you find me at a cocktail party and ask me my opinion on Bank of America, really, I got nothing for you. <laughs> but if you ask me what I think of Suffolk Bank Corp, I'll, I got we can talk for three four hours because at the end of the day, I'm one of the only people looking at Suffolk Bank Corp, and and I didn't even bother looking at Bank of America because what I mean, what value am I going to add for our shareholders? Or I'm not going to. My opinion is probably going to end up being somewhere in the bell curve of opinions, right? Maybe if I developed a huge outlying opinion, then you can go out and use that. But the evidence doesn't suggest that, or the data, the initial early data that I looked at doesn't didn't suggest that I was going to have any incremental insights in Bank of America that weren't already well known and, and published about. We should have a market foolery cocktail hour just so that people can buttonhole <laughs> you about we're, stuff. We should. I mean, we're on a we're on a hot streak of, of member events. We should have market foolery sponsored event. Uh, thanks for being here, man. And we only need a dozen seats. We only need a dozen. That's all we need is a dozen. <laughs> As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. That's it for this edition of Market Foolery. The show is mixed by Dan Boyd. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week. 